Hey, welcome to Hey All You Zombies. Uh, I'm Richard Krause. On the other end of the internet tube is Chris Abel. Woo! Hello. He's a gremlin engineer. I'm not <laughs> yes. exactly sure what that is, but I, I think we'll find out more as the show goes on uh, what that's all about. And today there seem to be some kind of weird gremlins. Last week, Mother Nature was actually working against us. We had a dark, weird, demented kind of show last week with thunder and lightning, and it was dark and weird, and I looked like I was... Uh, in one of those old Roger Corman, uh, Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies. I was only lit on one side, and it was strange. This week, we've gotten through all that. Uh, this week, we seem to be having little gremlins in the machine causing weird problems on the uh, uh, tech side of this. So bear with us. Stay with us, because we've got some cool kind of esoteric stuff to speak to you about today. Yeah. Well, uh, and and we uh, we played movie pistols at dawn last week. Oh yes. Uh, so we want to thank everybody who went to our website and participated. Once again, Richard has come out on top, although just by one vote. Uh, <laughs> for your fantastic suggestion of Rear Window, uh, and I also want to thank uh, one of our our lovely viewers actually wrote in to suggest uh, a film. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that, uh, but they had actually put in the idea that uh, the movie that they felt was great for uh, being a one-room movie, a movie that takes place just in right. one room, uh, was a movie called Across the Hall, uh, a noir-like film. Did you ever see that? No, I don't think I know Across the Hall. Across the Hall is a movie that uh, features Brittany Murphy, a uh, fantastic actress. No oh, yeah, who passed away in Sin City and lots of other movies, yeah. 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 Uh, and very interesting movie in that uh, it's basically uh, three uh, characters. There's a couple mm-hmm. of others, but three main characters that all sort of converge within a hotel room. Uh, it's all about Brittany Murphy and a mystery that's going on in her life uh, and two other men that she's involved when One is her fiancé, another is his best friend. Uh, but there's a sudden moment of suspicion of, paranoia, of, of suspicion that's going on. They all converge in that room. Really, really well done in terms of a noir. Uh, fantastic, because it was a movie I'd never heard of before. So I hunted it down. I watched it. Uh, I'd like to say a, a big thank you for that suggestion. Well, that's cool, I, because we both chose Hitchcock films, and really, you can't go wrong with the Hitchcock uh, choice. And it, it's interesting, because you know, once again, I feel vindicated. I feel happy. I feel superior but only by this much, because I won a movie Pistols at Dawn again. But, uh, but either one of those movies could have taken it, because they're both fantastic. Uh, I chose Rear Window. You chose Rope. Rent them both. If you haven't seen them, really, don't make me have to scold you this right. time next week for not having seen them. And thank you very much to Jonathan Kelly for writing in and suggesting Across the Hall. Uh, I hadn't heard of it, so, I mean, you know, that's fantastic. It's part of the, the nature of the game is to come up with movies that people haven't discovered. Maybe they need a little bit of a push. That was a push I needed, so thank you for that. Well, that sort of dovetails into uh, uh, one thing that I want to talk to, and this is sort of multi-pronged here. Uh, Judith Chris, who was one of the most widely film, read film critics uh, for three decades, uh, and one of the sort of forebearers of what I do, uh, passed away. She was 90 years old, and uh, she was sort of, I guess, best known as uh, being the first film critic on the Today Show, which maybe means she was the first film critic on television. I'm not exactly sure about that, but uh, she certainly uh, also wrote for, you know, um, loads of other people. She was at one point uh, called before, I guess, just before Roger Ebert came into the fore, the American critic with the widest impact on a mass audience. And she wrote for TV Guide uh, for decades and had an enormous audience, uh, upwards of 20 million people in print uh, every month. And she was... Uh, known for uh, sort of throwing out zippy one-liners. You know, she called The Sound of Music icky sticky, and uh, uh, a movie called Lord Jim uh, was written off as just a lot of uh, heavy five-cent philosophy. Uh, But she was extremely well-known in her day, and uh, I just want to commemorate uh, one of my own passing on at age 90. Uh, And that leads me into a topic that I wanted to talk about, though, um, a, a couple of days ago on Facebook, and I'm just pulling it up here so I can refer to it, I, I posted one of those things that, you know, I post every now and again, which is just for just for laughs. It is um, a review of uh, Total Recall from a, a guy called The Film Doctor. If you want to look him up, just Google Film Doctor Total Recall Review. And he has written a one-sentence review of Total Recall that's probably about... <laughs> 400 words long, 
right? But one sentence, I thought it was just kind of a, a fun uh, kind of, you know, thing to post on, on the wall on Facebook. Didn't expect to get any response to it. Well, I did. And um, someone wrote in and said, more stupid movies for stupid people. I'll stick to foreign films, thanks. And, you know, I thought to myself, uh, this kind of film snobbery just drives me around the bend. This uh, idea that uh, because if something is a foreign film, that it's automatically better than something that is produced domestically. And it got me thinking about, because uh, I've had this conversation with loads of people, you know, who try and, I don't know, play impress the film critic and, and start, you know, hammering <laughs> on about... <laughs> Uh, about how they only watch foreign films. And I, listen, I'm all for that. I'm all for watching films from of every uh, length, in every language, of every subject matter from all over the world. Uh, it doesn't really matter to me so much uh, where movies are from. But the idea of this sort of film snobbery uh, does get under my skin a little bit. And I've had people openly say to me, well, I'm a snob. And I'm like, well, you're missing out on some great movies then because you don't want to go to the local theater and see something that other people actually like too. So I thought uh, that for this fellow who wrote in and said that, you know, he would only watch foreign films, that I would just give a little rundown of what you'll be missing currently in theaters and in the next couple of months. So um, uh, I'll, I'll start with two movies that I saw over the weekend. Um, these are movies that I uh, hadn't uh, seen uh, uh, until just uh, over the long weekend here. And I'm screen sharing a picture. This is a snap from a movie called The Queen of Versailles. And uh, are you in there? You're not seeing it on screen, are you? Let no, me, I'm not. Uh, let me pull it up here again. Um, the Queen of Versailles is uh, an incredible documentary. Here we go. It's an incredible documentary um, about, uh, it doesn't look like this is going to happen. So I'll, no, I'll, the yeah. gremlins are acting it out. The gremlins are acting up here. Um, and it's too bad because it's an incredible picture. You'll just have to take my word for ah. it. Um, no, the, the, uh, it's a story of uh, a couple who have built the largest, um, the, no, see, now I'm putting up something completely I unlike I want to put up. Yeah, okay. The Gremlins <laughs> are acting up. Um, it, it, it's the story of uh, a wealthy developer who sells timeshares and, and his wife, who's 30 years younger, and their seven kids, and they live in a 26,000-square-foot home in Orlando, Florida, and they're building an even bigger one because, of course, they're bursting at the seams in a 26,000-square-foot room. So they're building what, had it ever been finished, they were going to call Versailles, and it would have been the biggest private home in America, in which, by extension, in North America. It's absolutely enormous, 90,000 square feet. Now, this could have just been a documentary about hubris. We've got a lot of money, so hey, watch what we're going to do here. And, you know, the kind of ridiculous 30-year age gap uh, in their marriage and things. But what it turns into is a really fascinating story about how the recession, the global recession, affected uh, the timeshare business where this uh, fellow made all his money virtually bankrupting him. It didn't bankrupt him, bankrupt him in the end. Apparently he has bounced back since this film was made. But uh, they lost the big house. Uh, they were literally, you know, shopping at Walmart instead of Tiffany's and things. And it's a really fascinating case study of uh, these people who have to pull together. Otherwise, their whole existence, as they know it, is going to flutter and disappear. It's really riveting stuff. It's called The Queen of Versailles. If you have a chance to check it out, do so. And now, it's in English. It's not a foreign film. So <laughs> some people out there may miss it. Uh, there's another movie called uh, First Point, and uh, First Position. First Position is the other documentary that I went to see this weekend. And um, this also is a really fascinating study of uh, young kids, and some as young as like 8, 9, and 10 years old, and then others a little older, like 17, 18 years old, um, who are professional or want to be professional ballet dancers. And the idea is that they uh, work to get into a competition in New York City where uh, representatives from every big uh, dance company around the world come 
Some are awarded uh, prizes just for being fantastic dancers. Others are awarded scholarships to the Royal School of Ballet in London and that sort of thing. And you really get to know the kids. And, I mean, like there's an 11-year-old girl that will blow your mind. Her name is Nico. And, I mean, it's, it's or Nika. And it's really something to see her uh, dance, the discipline, the amount of brutality that it takes to become a professional ballet dancer is really beautifully portrayed here. And the film is really, it's an eye-opener. It's a, it's a real eye-opener, and it will make you stand up and cheer near the end. Um, so two documentaries that you should probably have a look at uh, if you can tear yourself away from uh, the foreign rep theater in your neighborhood. Also playing uh, soon, uh, there's two movies that I wanted to mention. Uh, the Master, which stars Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, and Joaquin Phoenix. And this is uh, directed by uh, 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 the same fellow that made Magnolia, uh, Paul Thomas uh, Anderson. And it's a film uh, that is, I think, very, and I mean very loosely because nobody wants to get sued, very loosely based on the life of L. Ron Hubbard. Sure. And so it's about a science fiction writer who in the 50s creates his own religion. And uh, it has only been screened for a handful of people. Uh, apparently, the print is so new, there's no credits on it yet. So I haven't seen it, but I'm hearing Amy Adams, absolutely nominated for an Academy Award. I'm hearing Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix, very likely. This is apparently a masterful and uh, interesting uh, portrayal of this unusual story uh, in the same sort of a tonally kind of interesting way that uh, um, There Will Be Blood was as well. So you have a story that is, you know, um, not, it's told in a linear way, apparently. Again, I haven't seen it, but it's told in a linear way, but by very much using atmospherics and, and sort of interesting storytelling techniques. So there's another one for someone who can tear themselves away from uh, the, the rep cinema. And also Lincoln is coming out. Now, Steven Spielberg is not often uh, accused of being um, uh, someone that only movie snobs uh, will enjoy, but uh, because he has made so many populist movies. But I'll tell you, Lincoln, again, I haven't seen this, nobody has yet, but the performance of uh, Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln apparently uh, is something that is also going to be in heavy play uh, come Oscar time, and I'm really, really fascinated to see what can happen here. He, Spielberg's been trying to get this movie made for a very long time, and it's a, a film that's very near and dear to him, and I'm just really fascinated uh, to see the performance of Daniel Day-Lewis in this film. Right. Well, sounds fantastic. Yeah, so those are some interesting ones that I just thought would be uh, um, something you could have a look at if you wanted to uh, um, try something just a little bit uh, uh, outside uh, the normal thing that you would see. And if you're only interested in seeing, uh, you know, or if you only think, I guess my point is, if you only think that interesting movies are made outside of our borders uh, in the U.S. and or Canada, um, you're completely wrong. And, you know, go see if you have Canadian movies, go see Take This Waltz, which is in theaters right now, the Sarah Pauly film about uh, a woman who is just looking for more in her relationship. And uh, although I don't agree with the choices she makes in the film, <laughs> uh, I think that it's a really interesting look at this character. So, you know, I, I, this is what sort of spurred this topic on with me, yeah. is that just this idea that, you know, there are no interesting films made unless they're in uh, French or uh, Italian. Well, the danger of being a snob is that you end up uh, falling in love with your own preconceived ideas right. rather than what you should be doing, which is going out and challenging your own sense of the world yeah. around. And in order to do that, you have to be able to look at movies that come from any kind of source, uh, from the trash bin all the way up to the, you know, the Cine East sort of top favorites. Yeah, uh, well, you know. I agree, and, and I mean, one of the points that this fellow was making on, on Facebook, who frankly droned on for just a bit longer than I wanted him to on my page, but he was uh, saying, well, look, you know, Paranormal Activity 4 is coming out. That's really original. You know, I won't go see Total Recall. Well, then don't go see those movies, but there's loads of other ones to go see that, um, I, you know, I can, I can vouch for the quality of the two uh, uh, documentaries I told you about and the two other films, The Master and Lincoln, are getting such huge advance buzz that I think that they're both going to be interesting uh, things that aren't maybe exactly mainstream but are going to be fascinating to watch anyway. And every market around the world has its own formulaic 
crap, well, if you will. That's the thing. There's, yeah. They make as many, by ratio, they make as many bad movies in France as they do in Hollywood, and they certainly make as many sequels over there as they do in Hollywood. It's just, uh, you know, that the, the ones that filter through to us are, generally right. speaking, the really good ones. Completely, yeah. You know, when people say foreign films here, they tend to think of the art house titles, which yeah. are titles that have been, you know, curated and handpicked yeah. just for people looking for those kinds of films. It's not yeah. the same as if you were in another, if you were in South Korea and you went into the South Korean t uh, theaters, you're not going to see the selection that we get when you go to, you exactly. know, like a, a Queen Street store and, you know, I want a South Korean film. Well, okay, yeah. we only get the best. <laughs> No, it's true, and and and, and, and you know, uh, I just think yeah, I, I just wanted to throw out some titles, and in particular, the Queen of Versailles is really quite something. Um, okay. It is a, a documentary, I think, that uh, manages to not only be a, a great personal story because you really see the dynamic of uh, these two people who frankly look like a kind of unlikely couple. And you think at the beginning, well, she's a gold digger, you know, 30-year age difference, he's extraordinarily wealthy, you know. And then as the movie goes on, uh, they become real people and, and in very interesting ways. And there are character arcs that happen that, you know, a documentary filmmaker could probably only dream of, you know. But it's not a reality television show. This is reality in a, in a way that's really interesting and raw and, uh, and, and quite fascinating to watch. No, that's fantastic. And I have to admit that, uh, you know, if I had to think of what kind of movies I wanted to go off and see, going off and seeing something that's going to be about ballet wouldn't be on the top of my list. Yep. But I'm guessing that, uh, you know. It, well, it wasn't high on my list either, to be honest. And uh, I was really glad that I went to see it. Well, this past weekend, uh, I had an exciting time. I stayed up till 3 a.m. Sunday night to be able to follow the uh, historic landing of the Curiosity Mars rover. Right. And I got a feeling like it was funny because online, a lot of people kind of joined that party right at the very end. Right. On Twitter, a lot of people started tuning in. And I got the sense that uh, most people, if you just got the sense of the headlines that were talking about the Mars Curiosity rover, you may not have thought that it was going to be a big deal. Uh, it's certainly not the first time that we've gone to Mars. It's not the first time we've gotten photographs from Mars. And it's not even the first time that we've sent a robot uh, to do exploration on Mars. We've had, you know, Spirit and, and, you know, all these other great, you know, moments that have happened with Mars that you could kind of think, well, once again, they've sent up a little remote control buggy to that planet. What right. to do? What's so great? Well, first of all, uh, let me say that Curiosity to, is not a, a rover. I mean, technically you can call it that, but really it's a large, massive vehicle. I'm going to pull up a picture of it here. Uh, and what we're talking about here is a one-ton uh, science laboratory on wheels. So oh, yeah. it's massive. It's not another little remote-controlled car with a camera on it. No, this is a huge Mad Max-style desert vehicle. Well, uh, and it, you know, it's funny because it looks like... It doesn't look real. I mean, we're we're seeing a, a computer-generated image of it, right? We are. Yes. Is this the actual thing? No, but it, but it doesn't. It looks like something out of uh, a science fiction movie. I mean, it's, it's it, it doesn't look like it could possibly really exist. To me. No, it, it's amazing. I mean, this thing has lasers that can actually uh, you know carve away rock to be able to get <laughs> underneath, like burn away actual layers of rock to be able to get in, and it has an onboard laboratory. Now, what's important about that is that you know it's a full-on lab. So right. this is not us visiting Mars and sort of, you know, leaving a toothbrush in the bathroom just in case we're going to stay overnight one time. This is furniture. We now have furniture on Mars. It really <laughs> designates our commitment, okay? Right. This is the first real step towards us having astronauts there in the 2030s. Uh, right. And that commitment has been made apparently by Obama. But, I mean, it's, it's a moment in which it's a real change and shift in space exploration because over the past couple of decades, that has kind of been – there's been a lack of support. So this is really, really significant. Uh, the second thing was that in terms of following it, it was just harrowing. It was just tense. Uh, this has been considered to be the most difficult endeavor that NASA has ever had to take on. Uh, it's one thing to shoot a rocket at the moon, which has no atmosphere. It's just a rock in vacuum. Mars, of course, does have uh, has weather, it has uh, dust storms, it's got changes in terms of temperature. You're trying to fly a spacecraft and land it there, and trying to do that remotely from 550 million miles away is just astonishing. 
On top of that, uh, there is a delay in terms of the signals that are going back and forth. Right. Like so, 15 minutes, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, it was 14 minutes, and to the point where for the most important phase that's supposed to happen, trying to land this thing, you're essentially blind. So it was amazing to sit there and watch all these guys at NASA and have to sit there waiting for 14 minutes to find out if it actually landed correctly, if it was successful, if everything went all right. I mean, I've played video games where there's been a lag by just about one or two seconds, and that's been enough to drop me absolutely crazy. I can't imagine doing something and not getting a result right away, having to wait 14 minutes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you just compensate everything that you do. You, you, you're, you're working at a much different pace or much, uh, you're working in a much different way. Completely. I mean, they've been doing, uh, you know, redundant simulations ad nauseum uh, over and over and over for, for many, many months. One of the reasons why I put my little title there is Gremlin Engineer is because <laughs> that's an actual job position at NASA. They hire people whose jobs are just to try to think of everything possible that can go wrong and to commit those during those simulations. Um, oh, wow. so it's just absolutely fantastic in terms of, of trying to do that. But watching... But what went wrong with that one guy's hair? That's what I want to know, and you you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Mr. The Mohawk with the stars embossed well, in his head. This is one of the things I really uh, was struck by the whole experience was the, the warmth, the camaraderie, and the yeah. playfulness of yeah. the whole experience. It wasn't serious. I mean, you had a guy with a Mohawk. Uh, when Curiosity uh, finally left its trajectory and started heading towards uh, Mars, it actually put out a little tweet that said, uh, so long and thanks for the navigation. Which is a reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, when it finally did land, there was a lot of suspense because the way that it lands, it would land within this 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 crater, and so right. there actually is a, a point where there's a ridge that would block communications. And so literally, it landed, and it would have about two to three minutes before it could send any last-minute signals. So not only was it really really tight in terms of finding out if things went successful, but that would be the only time for it to be able to send any kind of uh, imagery. Right, right. And so the first tweet that came out, uh, and that was an amazing experience, uh, it said, you know, uh, picks or it didn't happen, here you go, you know, yeah. which is that great line that many people put uh, on the Internet when somebody makes a claim. But the, right. the, the wild experience for me was that the moment that it landed, here I am watching it, the reality is finally true inside my mind, this thing is on that planet, and I look down at my phone, and there I see the first images that it captured from Mars on my phone. That's crazy. Moments after it had landed, it was fantastic. But here's the cool thing. The, 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 the most amazing thing about it, if you were watching it, if you, you've read about it, you have to find out about this device, is this thing called, one word, it's just called, uh, here we are, Sky Crane. Sky Crane. Oh, the most Sky amazing thing cool. in the world. Yeah, okay, so what is this? This is a platform that is literally hovering in the Martian atmosphere by jets. I swear I've only seen this in comic books and movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the sort of thing you would think of Iron Man, sitting there floating yeah. in the air. So this is an actual crane that's floating in the air, and it is used to slowly drop the Mars rover onto the, the surface of the planet. Uh, <laughs> so the, the thing, I mean, I know what we're seeing there are computer simulated uh, images, of it, but it all looks very much like it's from a movie. It looks like it's from... Uh, you know, images that we've seen from, you know, Mission to Mars and things like that, which, it, you know, begs the question, how many people online are going, well, you know, there's a, I wonder what studio they filmed all this, uh, you know, the, the stuff oh, from the, Mars in. Yeah, the conspiracy buffs. Well, I, I mean, if you were watching the experience, uh, it was amazing how perfect everything really did turn out. The parameters that are involved, they, they call the seven minutes uh, for that landing, the seven minutes of terror. Right because there were just so many things that could possibly go right. wrong. And it went beautifully. It just went so perfect that, yes, there's going to be a lot of fodder for conspiracy theorists to, to sort of gravitate around. But this is what I want from, from science. This is what I want from space exploration. I want moments that seem like they're from science fiction, right. that I have that moment like I'm watching a movie where I have to almost feel like I'm suspending my belief just right. to, to, to sort of go along with what I'm being told. But this platform, this fantastic sky crane, uh, the incredible thing about it was that you can't really test it here on Earth. You can build it. But it's like we have the same atmospheric uh, conditions. You couldn't send it up in the space and drop it down. So they had no idea if it was really going to work. This, what they were doing on Mars, they were sort of doing for the very first time, and it came together, and it was just fantastic. The, the cheering 
the, the crying, the sense of relief. I mean, I watched it for about three hours, and you could feel the pressure building up in these engineers and scientists, even though they had been conditioned to know that this was going to happen. And it was almost like they were going to explode into a thousand Lego pieces. I mean, it was just amazing. And to see that sense of relief and to feel that euphoria, the cheers, the, the victory, the, the thing that I noted about it was it was very similar to what you might experience if you're watching uh, the end of the World Series or, uh, or the Olympics. The Olympics, <laughs> except that here there's no teams. There's, everyone is a winner. No one's a loser. And we just simply don't have enough moments like that. Uh, so this was fantastic and certainly something worth following as uh, Curiosity starts to perform its experiments and hopefully bring back other discoveries. Well, it's interesting to me because, uh, you know, I, was, uh, I didn't stay up and watch it because uh, I'm on early morning radio, and that just doesn't work. Staying up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, just, you know, getting an hour of sleep is, no, is not the way to do this, not the way to do the show. But, you know, certainly I watched it later. I saw the, the clips from it and things. Um, but, you know, it, it seems to me that this is one of the most amazing things, news-wise, certainly, that's happened in a very long time. And it's not getting the kind of play that I think that it deserves. I mean, I read about it on Twitter. I saw things. People are mentioning it. You're talking about it. But, I mean, I would be, you know, you are exactly who should be talking about it because right. this is your thing. But, um, you know, the Olympics and, you know, the, the badminton people uh, trying to rig their spot in the Olympics seems to have outshone the idea that we just landed on Mars, and it blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, it's completely, and I don't know if it's uh, necessarily going to be the same situation around the world. I know in England, uh, as you pointed out with the Olympics, where they had an entire moment to celebrate Tim Bernard-Lee, yeah. they have no problems uh, under, uh, sort of appreciating these grand moments in science. I mean, uh, you have currency over in Europe where they actually put uh, people like Newton on the bills. That's right. Whereas here in the United States and in Canada, it's just politicians that appear there. There seems to be a real disconnect in, in sort of, you know, um, appreciating these moments that truly are large and truly big. I mean, I, again, I, I kind of got the sense that a lot of people on the periphery might have thought this is just yet another similar case to what we've seen with, you know, some of the other rovers that have landed right. on Mars. But no, 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 there are aspects to this that are just really, truly incredible. I mean, I've, I can kind of wrap my head around... Uh, the trajectory and the geometry and the calculations that are needed to be able to land a rocket uh, on the moon. I can't do those calculations, yeah. but trying to wrap my head around all the parameters for what they've accomplished on Mars with a floating sky crane in the middle yeah. of the air, dropping, I mean, it's just, yeah. And the audacity, the fact that they had a meeting where they're trying to think, how do we get our rover to the, the surface? Do we use airbags? Do we use parachutes? And someone said, no, that's not going to work. Hey, and then you got one guy who says, what about a sky crane? Typically, in most meetings, that person would be sent out. No, you yeah, go yeah. away. I mean, that's just insane. And yet, you know, they went with it, and they made it happen. They only had one chance to do it, and it worked beautifully, perfectly. It's just not enough appreciation for it. Well, there isn't. And I'll, I'll tell you, this segues into something that I wanted to talk about a little bit, in the sense that um, in, in, in the radio station, uh, in the very early morning, and you're on uh, the same radio station early in the morning. Yes. And, you know, there's televisions everywhere. And when you're sitting in the control room and then when you're in the main studio, you, you can see the television. So I, I keep seeing images of this little girl today talking, a little precocious-looking girl talking. Now, we've landed on Mars. I don't see images of that so much in these days. Now, this happened a few days ago, so I can see news cycles come and go. But, you know, that seems to me to be a much larger story than the debut of Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, which is a new reality show that is going to be uh, premiering on TLC soon. And uh, this is just something that I wrote again today as my reaction of um, seeing this. And then uh, I threw it on Facebook, and we got some interesting reactions. So I wrote, not that we need any more evidence that the end of civilization is near, but today I saw a promo for Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, a reality series about a six-year-old beauty pageant contestant. I know people often want to unwind after a hard day at work by relaxing with something light and fluffy on TV before bed, but this show pushes the edges of exploitation. TLC has cobbled together a show that will have us laughing at and not with uh, a preteen girl. 
Now, she may enjoy the attention right now, but what when she is old enough, what will happen when she is old enough uh, to know better and winds up drinking with Heidi Montag, both wondering what the hell happened to their fame and their lives, perhaps then she'll be self-aware enough to understand how she was put on display like a dancing monkey. Watching the show makes us complicit in creating another reality star who will soon be forgotten. Uh, her titular catchphrase is culturally relevant as a cowabunga shirt on a 50-year-old. Do yourself a favor. Don't watch the show. Save your brain cells. And you'll also be doing a humanitarian service by sparing Honey Boo Boo the fate of becoming another used-up reality star hungry for attention after the laughing at her expense stops. So that's what I wrote on Facebook today. After watching this young girl uh, who is six years old and precocious, and precocious kids drive me crazy, <laughs> uh, I just I, I really felt like uh, she was being exploited in a way. Now she enjoys the attention; she's on TV. She's sure. her friends probably thinking, but there will come a point when you know this is going to come back to haunt her. I think, and people uh, agreed with me. I mean, you know, by and large, there's there's dozens of comments here. Um, but most everyone is saying, you know, it's it's uh, it's exploitive. You know, uh, I don't. This is why I don't watch TV anymore. Um, one person raised uh, an interesting point. Uh, Kurt Swinghammer, who's a musician, wrote another insulting show I will never watch. But its ratings might blow Breaking Bad out of the water. The networks are forcing production companies to deliver lowbrow content, and the folks making the show likely wish they were doing something worthwhile. And I hadn't really thought of that so much. Uh, <laughs> perhaps that's possibly true. You don't always get to pick and choose what you want to do. When the money's there, you, you may do it. But I know you've turned down projects because mm -hmm. you don't feel comfortable with the idea of it. And I'd like to think I would do the same thing in a similar situation. But I just felt that what we were watching uh, with this young girl, and they were showing promos for the, for the show, uh, was really um, uh, the, 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 the butt end of the reality show spectrum. I mean, there are shows about people who are famous just simply because they're nice looking. I kind of get that. But they're not six years old, you know, and I'm not necessarily going to watch any of these shows. I understand some of them are just sort of like, you know, candy for your eyes. I get that. This seems like a different level. This to me seems like they're taking advantage of uh, this young girl and her family. Um, you know, I would at least hope that maybe if there can be some good that comes out of this, that she'll get enough money to go to college and become something other than uh, a beauty pageant contestant. But it really struck me that I was watching uh, the kind of end of uh, uh, that I was watching something that wasn't right. That I was watching something that uh, felt to me very much like child abuse. Right. And I don't know whether I'm overreacting to this or not. I don't have kids. Um, I don't spend a lot of time with kids. All I know is that this didn't seem right to me. No, and those those um, pageants and the, and sort of the the way that those young lives are taken over never seems. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how you can excuse it. I, mean, I know people yeah. have a thousand one excuses, and even will develop excuses to be able to watch it. It's like, oh, I've just you know I've been thinking all day, working very hard. I don't want to think when I go home. I just want to watch a train wreck, and well, that sort of you know scratches that particular itch. But I, I think that we have reached a point where uh, it's fine to have this kind of content in the spectrum. It's another thing to make it a tentpole uh, subject, which is what ends right. up happening, that the entire industry, the machine of it, gets around and the, makes this must-have, must-watch television. That yeah. This becomes the central part of everybody's conversation, and we really should consciously avoid doing that. I mean, it's one thing if there's nothing really important to talk about. There's lots of important things to talk about, lots of great shows and content that should yeah. be pushed first and foremost, where that sort of offered as, as something on the side. So, yeah, I think just, I don't know, we've got to be a little bit more conscientious in terms of, of how we drive our, our culture as a society and not really care whether it's going to bring in the largest amount of numbers or bring in the large amounts of dollars. You also have to ask what the, the, the social value is at the end of the day, too. I, I agree. You know, I did an interview uh, uh, earlier today uh, in regards to my book that's coming out, and, and the interviewer said, uh, do you believe in censorship? My book, my book, Raising Hell, is in a large part about censorship. Right. And um, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan, not surprisingly. I'm not a fan of censorship. I don't, there are certain limits, you know, things to do with children and, and snuff films and things, obviously. It's a different, that's a different situation. But movies that 
uh, are made by, you know, mainstream or mainstream-ish people. I, I think, uh, you know, we have to police ourselves as viewers. We have to be the ones that make the decision whether you go or not. The human centipede to me holds no value whatsoever. This is not something that, that I want to see. That's not something that I'm going to go to. But I know that, and I didn't go see it. I censored it myself. I didn't I, – I, 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 the, the person that made it has every right to make that movie. I'm just not going to go see it. And I think that the same applies to this television show. Um, the way that we can make a statement, uh, without, because I, I, I feel really uncomfortable saying, well, you can't make these shows. In this case, I don't feel as uncomfortable because I do think that they're exploiting a, a six-year-old child. Um, if she was 16 or 26, then I might have a different feeling about it. But she's six, and that makes a difference to me. But I think that um, the way that we show our displeasure, the way that we uh, self-censor is by turning the channel and not watching this. And, you know, and I just wonder when the learning channel became something other than the learning channel. I mean, you know, if I was a bit more clever, I could think of uh, toxic something something, you know, for to, to stand for TLC. It just, to me, uh, seems uh, like they are pandering to the absolute lowest common denominator. Yeah, well, they're being lazy, I think, yeah. is, is really the, the problem here, is that they're going for easy controversy. But there are ways in which you can handle that. These little pageants have been going on for many, many years. Yeah. I think there is certainly a value in terms of taking that culture bringing it to a national level, allowing the people who are involved in those pageants to see themselves as they're being viewed by people in other cultures, in other states, right. other cities, where I think that there's a value there to sort of instigate positive change. It's different when it becomes a, a circus sideshow. And that's what it sounds like this program is sort of you know, set up to be, and that's because that's what many uh, television executives have started to learn is what going to get, it's going to get you the numbers, and for the least amount of money, the least amount of work that's involved, that's wrong. I think at the end of the day that if you're in broadcasting, there's a commitment to not only try to make your business successful and be financially you know, uh, responsible, but also to, to, to great, create really great content and strive. If it's going to cost a little bit more money and a little bit more effort, you're going to have to hire somebody better to come in and do it right, then it's worth doing that. Rather than saying, well, you know what, we can have anybody come in and create a sensational show about you know, uh, these pageants because that's easy money. Well, uh, this is the, the, the last uh, time I will say this name because I'm not going to give this show no. any, more, uh, any more publicity. Uh, Honey Boo Boo, uh, to me, seems exploitative, and it doesn't seem like we're doing this young girl uh, any favors. I think that she's being taken advantage of. It really feels that way to me. It may not feel that way to her family right now, and it may not feel because they're getting a paycheck here and there, but let's look at the, the, the a list of uh, reality stars who were older and wiser and should have known better, and the mess they made of things. When you have uh, this, this six-year-old girl who uh, is going to be thrown into a world that there's no way that she can possibly understand, and frankly, to my mind, from what I've seen, doesn't seem equipped for, um, I just think that this is a recipe for disaster and could very potentially have uh, a serious effect on her later life. Well, uh, hopefully, I mean, not all of those shows take off, uh, so hopefully it'll be one of the ones yeah. that sort of... Well, hopefully we just, no one will watch this one and it will go away. There's so many other things to check out, you know, right. especially even here on YouTube. Um, so uh, something else I wanted to talk about, because we are, of course, Hail You Zombies. There's this fantastic game that is quickly rising in popularity called Day Z or right. Day Z. Right. Uh, referring to Z for Zombie, Day of the, the Apocalypse. Uh, and this is an online, uh, massively multiplayer online game that uh, recreates uh, 225 square kilometers of, of Soviet Russian land, <laughs> which is massive. That's a huge amount of land. So when you appear there, uh, you do have this real sense of realism in that you're walking down suburban streets. There's cars. There's homes and bricks. There's wow. trees. Uh, you know, and as you keep walking, the neighborhood continues to change. There are times in which you'll look up and, wow, there's a hospital. Or over there, suddenly there's a church. Uh, in fact, and it's very, as you expect with an apocalyptic, apocalyptic world, it's very serene, it's very quiet, it's very moody, it's very atmospheric. Uh, but this is to simulate in far more realistic simulation than we've seen before in other media, uh, the sense of what it's like to be uh, in a world where zombies have sort of overtaken the world, as it were. And what's interesting about it is that they've taken away all the things that, are, that video games usually do to be helpful. 
Most video games, <laughs> right? Most video games do things that are there to try to support you as a as a right. player to kind of help you out. Make Everyone, the game user friendly. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the common delusion that all video game players share is that they are somehow overcoming a realistic situation when the truth is that the game is designed to cater towards your particular needs. Right. Daisy doesn't do that in that there is no map, there is no compass. Right. When you arrive, uh, you have no equipment, there are no guns. There's, there's not even a guide really to tell you how to play the game. In fact, right. one of the things that happens is that people start to notice things. Oh, wow, I didn't realize there was little dots on the side of the screen, and that's to represent your peripheral vision. Okay, you're completely right. abandoned and left alone. And then the second aspect is, is something called permadeath, which means that when you die in this game, there is no press the button to continue. <laughs> There's no insert coin. That's it. Wow. Uh, which itself is very interesting, because you can imagine that if you've invested four hours in an activity, and to suddenly be told all that work is undone and you have to start all over again, why would people want to continue to play it? I mean, well, and you're a gamer. Like, what, what is the appeal to you in that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's something that's very particular to video games. Because if you were to go down to a beach and you had people who were building intricate sandcastles and spent four or five hours only to have a, a couple of bullies come over and just kick it over, right. Right. you wouldn't expect that person would just keep on building sandcastles. But that's kind of what's happening here. <laughs> and I think part of it is just... Um, the, the, the sense that there's a greater challenge that's in front of you and therefore your victory, should you right. manage to last long, is greater uh, in co by association. Right. So right. what's interesting is that just this game does try to make things very, very severe. Uh, you, your life expectancy isn't very high. Uh, most people die usually within the first 10 to 20 minutes. Uh, right. Some people manage to get up to about 40 minutes or four hours. It's pretty incredible, but it's very wonderful as a moody, atmospheric game. The fact that you're having to creep around. Uh, the zombies, although they kind of just sort of stumble around, are trained to recognize sounds. If, if you're just walking loudly, right. then they might suddenly turn on you and come running screaming. So in order to survive, wow. you have to go to these extreme lengths where most people actually crouch as they walk around so that they're not standing tall, they can't be seen. Uh, you have people that make mistakes that you wouldn't even think about. You, you see a beach, you think, I'm going to follow the coastline. No, because now you're a silhouette that's standing out, obviously, against the water. Everybody in town can see you, come running and grab you. That's pretty fantastic. Um, what's interesting about this is that this is a game that was created by a fan. It's not an official game. Uh, they've taken an existing game and they've added all these modifications to it. Uh, and so in terms of playing it, it's kind of rough. It's, right. it's experimental. It's a new frontier. People are still sort of figuring it out and trying to find ways of, of sort of playing the game in ways that it's not designed for. And there's been some interesting ones because, of course, today what people do is when they play a video game, they actually record themselves playing the game and then they'll right. upload any interesting moments to YouTube. This is good because in the world of, of DayZ, anything goes. And so... It has become this magnet for every 13-year-old, 12-year-old bully, you know, the kind of kids that normally are in the back torturing their cats or burning, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. They're playing Daisy, and they don't play as proper survivors. They run around like bullies with guns shooting anybody as well as the zombies themselves. And so you will meet really, really cruel people who will come up and befriend you and say, I will help you. I'll, I'll look out, and will you go in, and I'll make sure. And then the moment you turn your back, they just shoot you in the back of your head. Take all the things that you've collected, all that hard work you've done. Wow. It's amazing. And, of course, you get people who try to implement their own culture. So you actually have people running around as roving bands of bandits. And right. when they find people, they'll, they'll hold them at gunpoint and say, okay, you gotta, we're going to escort you back to our base. You're, we're going to interrogate you. We're going to take all your, your belongings. And if you're lucky, we might let you go, or we might kill you or torture you. There was one video I saw of a guy who went after a guy, shot him until he was unconscious, and then said, I'm sorry, gave him bandages. The moment that he healed, then shot him again. And <laughs> this is all he was doing and recording it and wow. putting it on YouTube and saying things wow. like, beg for mercy, beg for mercy. So wow. I want to tell you, it's a fascinating experience, but it's not something that the average person can play because there are you know, really nasty, horrible people that are playing the game and not making it nice. Yeah. But it's, what's interesting is that you have the flip side uh, in gamer culture, which is that there are people who react to that and try to, and, and try to come up with something creative. And there's two right. things I came across that I thought were very funny. The first was that one gamer decided 
since there are churches in this game, which are very frightening because you'll walk around, it's all quiet, you're, you're painfully aware of any sound might bring zombies to come in and kill you. Right. Uh, suddenly the church bells go off and you know you panic and you go crazy. Someone knows that there's a church there, so he actually decided he would hold a church service every Sunday. Made it aware to everybody out there, me and my friends are going to be at this church, I'm going to stand up and pretend to be a priest, and I'm actually going to, I'm going to give a sermon. And you can imagine that that brought every lunatic and bully and madman within 225 kilometers descending upon that church. And it was hilarious. Uh, there's a video of it on YouTube. They actually played organ music. A guy stood up at the, the pulpit, started to deliver three lines, and, of course, a door opened and a grenade came rolling in. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. it was just a complete massacre from that point on. You know, it's sniper wow. rifles. Uh, people saw, you know, missile launchers come screaming in. It was just... It was just absolute pandemonium. And then the second video, and I'll put this on our website as well, which is hysterical, is that one, uh, and I believe it's a woman, decided to go around presenting herself as a My Little Pony. Because the world is full of evil, cruel people, so her idea, uh, she doesn't harm anybody, but she goes around trying to make friends with everybody. Uh, and particularly looks for anybody who's been knocked unconscious that may be lying on the ground, and she goes and sits down and keeps them company. She, whoever the player is, she's using voice modulation right. software to make her sound like a little tiny five-year-old girl. Uh, and you can imagine that you, she actually seeks out like the toughest, most masculine fellows from deep in the south who are survival military guys who are lying there waiting for their character to kind of heal so they can kill. They're basically prisoners. They have to sit there and listen to this girl sit next to them and just natter on about oh, how everybody, yeah, what's going on? Can we Why can't we all just get along? That kind of thing. We can, I give wow. you a can of soda. I have a tent over there. You can sleep in my tent if you want. Uh, she would go to bases and try to convince them that uh, they should make a passcode and call that passcode cupcakes and try to sit there and watch as these big burly guys would come in and try to get in. She'd say, no, no, what's the password? And until they said cupcakes, she wouldn't actually let them come in. Wow. And so, this has been the amazing thing with Daisy is that it's become a kind of performance art as people right. invent things to do within the game. They record it and they put it on YouTube. Uh, I don't highly recommend playing the game right. unless you're a really experienced player. The game looks fantastic. I do recommend going online and checking out YouTube. Uh, just do a search on Daisy. There's all sorts of great things. A few people have managed to actually find experiences where they are alone, they do a narration, they add sound effects, beautiful, beautiful sort of production value. Uh, the other cool thing to announce is that the game has been announced, it's going to be turned into a proper game. A company has hired the guy who invented this little makeshift version, right. and they're actually going to release a proper Daisy game later on. We don't know when. The good news is that when a game is released in that fashion, generally there are uh, controls put into place to kind of limit the bullies and the creeps and the, right. the the trolls, as it were. Wow. I look forward to that because it, it sounds like a fantastic experience. Wow. Well, it is that time when yeah, we talk true. about uh, movie pistols at dawn. Now, this is uh, part of the show where Chris and I, we have a topic, and uh, we both choose something. Uh, we, we both choose a clip or, or a character or, or an idea from a movie that, that we enjoy. And we encourage you to give some feedback. So you can vote for either Chris or, or me um, at uh, heyallyouzombies.com. There's a poll that's always right underneath the video that, that uh, we're making. And uh, this week, because in celebration of Honey Boo Boo, no, uh, this week <laughs> we're going to, I know, uh, it's all about uh, Martians. And uh, for me, the, the, the Martians that are most vivid to me are Mars Attacks. And it's not my favorite Martian movie, I don't think, but uh, just the, I, I know that Mars Attacks, of course, the movie is based on the trading cards of the same yeah. name. And I just love the skeleton with the giant, bulbous brain uh, encased in plastic, encased in glass dome, so of course they can breathe, you know. But they also wear colorful costumes. There's red and sort of green. But they're, they, they, they appear... Uh, scary when you first see them in the movie, and then there's a moment where you think, oh, they've come in peace. And then, of course, they have it. <laughs> and it's a fantastic moment. Uh, they are incredible creatures uh, just visually uh, to look at. 
you know, they're not little green men, uh, but they are, are, are really something that has always stayed with me since then. As I say, it's not my favorite Martian movie. It's not even my favorite Tim Burton movie. I just love the design of these Martians, these little green men. Yeah, the, the, the bell jar, sort of bubble gum machine, yeah. uh, glass helmets. Uh, you know, you would think that it's, it's not terribly original to have a skull-like face, and yet somehow... The way that they've combined it with the yeah. cerebral brain and the large, beautiful eyes makes them just look really insane. It makes uh, them in look insane way. And, and, and in a comedic way because they are – it is a funny movie, but it's yeah. also quite a violent movie. And if you look at the original credit cards, they're terrifying. I mean, they're, they're zapping kids' dogs, turning them into piles of dust while kids are crying. And, you know, it's an incredible series of cards if you can find them. Uh, we'll put, we'll post a link to some images of that on the Absolutely, website. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they are they, they, for for just sheer kind of beauty. I think that the Martians from Mars Attacks are are the way to go. Uh, I love them too. They they perform kind of a, a sadistic slapstick where you find yourself mm. laughing and then you have to wait a minute. What am I laughing at? I mean, it's yeah. just really quite extreme. Uh, my choice, and this has really been a hard category because there are very few good movies about Mars. I don't know right. why that is the case. Yeah. There's a lot uh, of movies about Mars, and just very few good ones. Yeah, and I don't know why, because it's, it's such a fascinating uh, subject matter that for some reason they haven't latched on. But my choice actually is a more recent one. Uh, I'm going to go with Tars Tarkas, uh, who is the alien from uh, John Carter. Yeah. yeah. A movie that uh, actually just came out, I think, at the beginning of this year. Yeah. Uh, it so it's it been was... quickly forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Tars Harkis. He's green as any good Martian should be, yeah. uh, but very, very tall, played by Willem Dafoe with, uh, on stilts and four yeah. CGI uh, arms. But I, I love Willem Dafoe as that character of the warmth that he gives to that voice, right. uh, the interaction that's there between him and John Carter. The rest of the movie is a bit of a disappointment, but not horrible, not as, as bad as yeah. other people have made out to be. Uh, but I think that that character... It's fantastic and really represents one of the great aspects of the novel that it's based on. Tars Tarkas could have been just um, the typical leader of an alien tribe that they often right. show in movies, but no, he's far more intelligent than that. I love the fact that it's not so much about John Carter trying to figure this alien out as much as it's Tars Tarkas trying to figure out John Carter, and that's and something that many alien movies forget to include. Well, and let's not be, you know, let's not forget this is not a great movie, uh, but but it's 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 a good it's a good alien in in this movie. But you know, one of the things that I appreciated about this is that there are attempts of humor in this film uh, that you often don't see in these kind of movies. So uh, they're trying to communicate, and he says, uh, you know, John Carter from Virginia, and of course, Charles Targus is like Virginia, and calls him Virginia for the rest of the movie. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a funny little touch that didn't need to be there, but it's kind of cool that it is. <laughs> and it plays its purpose in terms of trying to show the the cultural differences between right. the two. But I, I like Tars Tarkas because he is uh, shown as being kind of a, a primitive culture. Right. He comes off as being one of the more, most intelligent characters in the entire story. So right. uh, definitely, you know, it, it's hard to choose a really great Martian, especially one that's not trying to kill us. That's yeah. my choice this week. <laughs> All right, well, uh, you can vote at heyallyouzombies.com, either uh, for Mars Attacks or for Tars Tarkas from uh, John Carter. Check it out. You can also get in touch with us. Let us know what your favorite Martians are. And uh, we'll do this all. We'll announce the winners next week. And then we'll do this all again next week with some more kind of, you know, I'll probably just be angry and ranty like I was today. And Chris will bring a more reasoned approach to things. <laughs> enthusiasm. Uh, enthusiasm, that's right. I'm going to leave uh, you. Go ahead. Nope, go ahead. You know what? I only I just want to leave this with just one word, one very very important word: Sky Crane. Oh, Sky Crane! I like that.